Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. What if everything we were taught about consciousness by conventional science in the past was wrong? And what if there was proof that heaven exists? Imagine being a distinguished brain surgeon teaching at Harvard, and you're convinced there is no afterlife, until all of a sudden your brain dies and you are on life support for seven days. And during these seven days, you travel to the other side and meet God. This is the story of Dr. Evan Alexander. The American neurosurgeon's book, Proof of Heaven, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and his latest book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is a compelling introduction to the current paradigm shift in science, where the old nihilistic worldview, where consciousness is merely a side effect of the brain activity, is now being replaced by the idea that consciousness is the fundamental basis of what defines and makes reality itself. Dr. Alexander's take on consciousness, mind, soul, and love offers a compass to navigate the trying times of conflict and confusion we're currently experiencing. In this interview, he not only talks about a life after death, but also how to live a more meaningful existence right here and now, and how his near-death experience completely changed his old worldview, which was, until then, completely materialistic. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Evan, thank you so much for making time today and joining us on the Superhumanize podcast. Welcome. Ariane, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be with you today. Evan, in your book, The International Bestseller, Proof of Heaven, you speak about something that really resonated with me. You're talking about the amnesia of the divine, so pretty much the loss of heaven. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yes. The way I frame it up in my own personal story, of course, has to do with my adoption history, that I was put up for adoption when I was 11 days old. And I talk about what an impact that had on my life, whether I was even worthy of love, all those kinds of deep kind of existential questions. But it really, there is this thing programmed forgetting. It's amazing, but we don't the for example, at the University of Virginia, they've studied past life memories in children going back more than six decades, they have more than 2,500 cases they've investigated, 1,700 of which they think are solved. That means they found the original person described by the child. And it's just a much bigger picture of reality in terms of our kind of engagement that we are souls that come back again and again to get, to get it right, to help evolve consciousness towards that higher level. And that's what I think is 
going on with all of this. And that's why my journey was such a gift. And I love how thousands of people out there share their own gift with me, given that I shared my stories so publicly. Thousands of people have shared their own NDEs, and it just confirms the reality of this of this realm, of the spiritual realm, as having absolute kind of real essence to it that we need to pay attention to as human beings if we're at all interested in living up to our true meaning and purpose. 100%. And I love that you brought up that at the University of Virginia, they are studying these past life events or the phenomena of it. Uh, We're living in a really interesting time where I feel that spirituality and science are intersecting and more and more people are becoming open to this. Why do you think that many people still do perceive science and spirituality almost like a contradiction? I think it comes from the lay press and the scientific writers who write for the mainstream media. It turns out they really are not privy to what's going on at the deepest levels in scientific communities around the world around this question of consciousness. And a very beautiful example of the kind of power that this research brings to bear concerns a contest that was held last year. It was run by Robert Bigelow. He's an aerospace engineer in Las Vegas. And he put out the question, what is the best scientific evidence for survival of conscious awareness beyond permanent bodily death? and received a tremendous response, more than a thousand groups that were interested in providing a paper. And then they tightened the restrictions and said, you have to demonstrate at least five years of serious research work in this question of the afterlife before we'll even look at your essay. When they did that, they then gleaned it down to 204 essays. And turns out they were originally going to give prizes for one, two, and three place. But there were so many high quality essays that he, he poured in a lot more dollars and ended up rewarding 29 winning essays with a monetary award. And those essays are available for free to the public today. And once you start reading them, you'll realize that the science on this is very well established that it's absolutely real. We have to determine much more about how it all works and the relationship between brain and mind that allows for all this to happen. But as we discussed in our book, our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, this is really about a unification of science and spirituality. And people have to acknowledge that for the last century or so, basically materialism, physicalism, the notion that only the physical world exists, that notion has been debunked by quantum physics itself, even though a lot of quantum physicists still don't quite get it. They don't understand the connection between brain and mind. It has to do with the fact that as neuroscience would try and tell you every bit of conscious awareness of everything, perception, thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, emotions, feelings, every single bit of that human awareness depends on neurons in the brain and nervous system that are absolutely quantum level machines. They are not classical Newtonian deterministic machines at all. Neurons operate by quantum principles, which means that Heisenberg's uncertainty is operative at the level of the synapse. It's very interesting, but it gets a little deep and complex. Again, in Living in a Mindful Universe, we go into a great discussion of all this. But what we come to realize is materialism is the new pseudoscience. And that, in fact, when it comes to questions of brain, mind, the nature of reality, the fundamental nature of consciousness, what we're finding is quantum physics opens the door widely 
to free will and to mind basically influencing all of emergent physical matter and reality. And that is the deep, profound scientific truth that's coming to this world today. And it's one that fully honors not only the reality of the afterlife, but of reincarnation in our soul line and our coming back again and again in our relationships with others. The binding force of love that's so apparent in near-death experiences is brought out as a fundamental principle of the universe in this emerging science of consciousness. And it becomes important to realize that we're all truly sharing one mind. Mm -hmm. I love how if people go to bigelowinstitute.org and start reading those winning essays, the second place essay is by Pim Van Lommel, a Dutch cardiologist. And he did a fantastic job with it. But at the very end, he's discussing how the scientific implications of this great delving into the nature of reality and consciousness is truly showing us that we're sharing one mind and that the brain is a, a reducing valve or filter that allows that primordial mind in. But one of the top lessons of NDEs going back thousands of years with a life review has been that when you go through that life flashing before your eyes, you actually experience it from the emotional perspective of those around you who are impacted by your actions and even your thoughts. That's an important point. Life reviews make clear that this thing of self, that we call ourselves self and we think our minds are separate from other minds, that when you dig deep in the scientific world, you find that's not necessarily true. And that's why deathbed visions are so real. Loved ones who have already crossed over come to welcome us, comfort us, reassure us. Before my coma, I thought that was all hallucination, you know, who you want to see. After my coma, I came to realize that is that means it's an authentic experience. When, for example, my own mother was passing over in April of 2019, my adoptive mother at age 99, she spent her last four days deep in this unresponsive state due to a pulmonary infection. But on the second night before she passed, at 2.30 in the morning, she woke up. She got her nurse up, said, my mother's here. My mother's here. Call my children right away. The nurse did not do that. I wish she had. Because to me, I've come to understand through thousands of my own encounters with others who have been through these things, that her seeing her mother was the absolute stamp of approval saying, this is it. She is really going to pass over now. And she did within the next two days. Mm. And that's pretty much the way it works. But she was seeing her own mother. I have a story of that kind of terminal lucidity and proof of heaven, where one of my colleagues, one of my friends, top neurosurgical training program on earth, and he was the chairman, and he had this experience with his own father, who witnessed the soul of the father's mother, that would be his own grandmother, at the foot of the bed when he passed over 64 years after he had been with her when she died during the Holocaust. That is, the father had been 14 years old with the mother when she passed and now, and he never talked about it, never talked about her, but now as he is on his deathbed, she appears to him in this beautiful vision. He's smiling. He's just a beautiful reunion. He's talking to her. My friend was absolutely convinced of the reality of her soul being there at the foot of the bed, even though my friend could not see her, but he knew from his father's response, this was absolutely real. And he had no way of understanding that until about a year and a half later, I was visiting that particular institution and went by to talk with him and told him about my experience. And mm. that's when he went, oh my God, because it opened his mind to that reality of that connection across time and space with a loved one, his grandmother, who he'd never really heard much about, now presenting in real form, in real time, to welcome his father's soul over. To me, it was just an astonishing story. 
And I think the accounts that we hear more and more about because we're becoming more and more open, at least in pockets of the world, I think there's really not just a revolution, an evolution going on. People, this has started already decades ago with the advent of yoga in the Western world, breath work, meditation. Of course, now we have what a lot of people call the third wave of psychedelics and not being used as party drugs, but being used to really connect with your deepest self, to connect with the divine. I'd love to talk about that a little bit further down this conversation as well. What I'd love to do now, Evan, is for you've had three best-selling books out. Your story has gone around the world. For those in the audience who may not be that familiar with your story, could you give us a very quick recap of what happened to you on November 10th, 2008, so they can actually understand what the connection is with the NDEs that we're talking about here? Okay. So that I was 54 years old at the time. I've been, I've spent 15 years teaching neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. I had taught at other institutions around the world. And so I woke that morning with severe back pain and soon realized I had a horrific headache. And anyone in medicine who hears a sudden onset of back pain headache is immediately going to think of meningitis. But the doctor was already out. My brain was being overrun by an extremely aggressive, primitive, and should have killed me bacterial meningoencephalitis. And it turns out the rest of that week, I went into coma at home out in the lay press, there's this huge myth that I was in a medically induced coma. But Dr. Bruce Grayson, Dr. Serbi Khanna, and Dr. Lauren Moore were fascinated by my recovery. They weren't involved in my care, but this recovery was something so remarkable. They went through all of my medical records and then wrote up a case report. That appeared in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in September 2018. And it's a very important confirmation and affirmation, validation of the story I told in Proof of Heaven. But they actually go much further because they spent a lot more time with my medical records, made it absolutely clear my brain could not have put together any kind of dream, hallucination, confabulation. Those parts of my brain were demonstrably offline, according to my medical records, neurologic exams, CT and MRI scans, lab values. This was a, an absolutely should have killed me case of meningoencephalitis. My own doctors during the week of my coma, early in the week, they estimated a 10% chance of survival. But when I'd not responded to three powerful intravenous antibiotics, while on a ventilator for seven days, um, they decided that I was down to a 2% chance of survival with no chance of recovery. Because reviewing the medical literature with that kind of meningitis, somebody in coma that long, they just don't come back. And that's why they recommending stopping antibiotics and letting nature take its course. And it was soon thereafter that I came back to this world. But the important point for the audience out there is that my experience completely violates everything modern neuroscience would try and tell us about the brain, mind, and consciousness in a very profound way. And that's why you find people might try and attack me personally. They don't really attack my story because it is so bulletproof against the idiocy of materialist pseudo explanations. And my recovery, the full recovery over two months post coma is really inexplicable, except when challenged, these three authors who wrote this paper, challenged by the peer reviewers of that journal, how do you explain this case? Nobody this sick from meningitis ever comes back to full recovery. And the three doctors said it's because of the near-death experience. 
That's what allowed him to have this very remarkable recovery and noteworthy recovery. And that's the important point really for all of us. And the brief, briefest of versions, because I tell the story in full detail and many YouTube talks and in proof of heaven. And of course, my personal story is very much continued in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe. There's very important information there for anyone interested in my personal journey in this unfolding. But the the beautiful reality was deep in this journey when it happened during that week of coma. What I experienced was, for one thing, amnesia. I had no memories of Evan Alexander's life, no knowledge of Earth, this universe, humans, etc. So I couldn't have an Evan Alexander life review. And only in the months and years after my coma did it become clear to me why, <coughs> excuse me, why that amnesia was so critical for some of the deepest lessons I was to learn from the NDE. But in that setting of amnesia, it all started in what I call the earthworms I view, primitive course on the responsive realm. But I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody, ushered me up into this brilliant, ultra real gateway valley, much more real than this world. People mistakenly assume that an NDE is dreamy and murky and unreal. It's not. This world is dreamy, murky, unreal compared to that world is far more sharp, crisp, stunning, detailed, alive, meaningful. That's why it changes people's lives. That's why they come back and for the rest of their life, they're a different person because they've been awakened to a much grander reality. And these are common experiences. Now, in that uh, going up in that transition to that beautiful gateway valley, it had many earth-like features. I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing, millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in vast formations, thousands of beings in this beautiful fertile meadow, meadow down below us, surrounded by this rich forest, waterfalls into crystal blue pools. I go into incredible description of the lush, lovely nature of this world in the book. Then there was my awareness of a soft summer breeze. That was my first knowing of the force of God, that loving, healing force of infinite, unconditional love that so many in the ears through thousands of years across all belief systems have encountered this similar reassuring force and come back to this world. It's why we don't have to worry. There's nothing to fear there. So there was a beautiful guardian angel beside me on the butterfly wing. Those who've read Proof of Heaven will realize how important she was four months after my coma when I found out her identity. And that was an absolute shock. And uh, But anyway, I ascended up through that level to what I call the core realm. The core was a oneness with the divine. It was where all dualities resolve into oneness. The dazzling darkness, as I called it. So many of the lessons I was taught there about reincarnation, life reviews, every bit of it I could see in the big generic sense, but not in a sense of Evan Alexander's personal life review. And then I was always told in that core, you're not here to stay. I would spontaneously tumble back down to the earth where my view. And I cycled through these realms multiple times. But the essence of it is there came a time when I no longer could conjure up through the memory of the musical notes, that spinning portal of light that took me into that gateway valley. That's when I witnessed thousands of beings going off into the distance, heads bowed, murmuring energy coming from them, lots with candles. But the energy of that was this beautiful reassurance of love and connection, like being in the spiritual home, just as I've been reassured so much in the gateway valley and the core realm through multiple passages in this very extensive journey. And then I was aware of six faces. They'd bubble up out of the muck. They disappear. They serve as what are called veridical time anchors because they were people. Uh, five of the six were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours of coma. 
Therefore, they help to show that the vast majority of the coma journey happened between days one and four or days one and five. The timing is all explained in the book, Proof of Heaven. But th those are crucial because you want to know when this happened. And I know it didn't happen going into coma or coming out of coma. And those are very important points. And then when I did wake up and come back to this world, it was because of my son Bond, 10 years old at the time. They protected him from the worst news of the week. Day seven of coma, he overhears the doctor saying, it's time to let dad go. He knows that's horrible news, runs down the hallway. There I am on my ventilator, eyes taped shut. He pulls open my eyes, one looking over here, one over there. Neither pupil working, those of you in medicine know that's a horrible picture. He was pleading with me, daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. I didn't understand the words. I didn't know who he was, but there was this absolutely stunning sense of connection. And I knew I had to come back. I didn't know how to do it, but I had to will my way back to be there for this other soul who needed me. And when I did come back to this world, I didn't even recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons at the bedside. I had no idea who they were. Those memories came back very quickly over hours and days. Language came back over hours and days. Childhood memories over a week or two. All of my semantic knowledge over about two months. And in fact, those memories, like of neuroscience, of cosmology, physics, were even more complete when they came back to me than they had been before coma. We go into all of that in detail and living in a mindful universe, discussing how memories are not even stored in the brain and all this evidence for the primacy of consciousness. Idealism is a bottom line, and that's what emerges from our book. And that's what has been so supported and endorsed by leading scientists around the world. Yes, and which is an incredible development and change from this materialist worldview, this which sprang, I think it came from the 1700s, right? Is that it's where? Been around, yeah, it had as earliest origins go back more than 2000 years, but you're right, much of kind of materialist thought and firming up on materialist beliefs happened in the last few hundred years. But then, of course, with the advent of quantum physics almost a century ago, That flipped, and yet so much of the scientific community still is clueless about this. Luckily, some quantum physicists are very attuned to this revolution in consciousness and the importance of quantum physics. That would include luminaries like Roger Penrose and Brian Josephson, both of whom are Nobel Prize winners in physics and both endorse a much deeper interpretation of quantum mechanics in terms of understanding brain-mind consciousness and the nature of reality. You also have Henry Stapp, who's written extensively and a very high level understanding of quantum physics and the brain. So Minas Kafatos and Amit Goswami, there are numerous physicists around the world who have written about this and who get it. There are other physicists who remain absolutely clueless, but they'll catch up sooner or later, as soon as they start doing the homework. But BigelowInstitute.org is an excellent repository for a lot of the scientific data supporting absolutely the reality, not only the afterlife and of our soul connections with our loved ones as represented through after-death communications, but also this incredible body of past life memories and children suggestive of reincarnation. Obviously, science in the current era needs to grow into much bigger shoes to fill than the puny little fictional dance of materialism and its bleak promise of annihilation when brain and body die. Uh, yeah. It's wrong. They are dead wrong. And in fact, it's been very harmful to this world. 
this notion of false sense of separation that comes from materialism is a reason we have so much hardship in this world. Corporate greed, addiction of fossil fuels, economic wealth disparity with most of the world getting cut out of the economic pie of the successes of the wealthiest. And all of this is due to this false sense of separation and a quantum informed version viewing the one mind that we all share together. And what I was getting at a few minutes ago was in that winning essay by Pim Van Lommel, uh, second place essay in the, in the Bigelow Constitution, our, our competition, he, he mentions four resources for this notion of the one mind. One is the book, One Mind by Dr. Larry Dosky, highly recommended, excellent book. Another is the book, Spiritual Science by Steve Taylor. Another uh, recommendation of Van Lommel is Bernardo Castrop's paper, The Universe in Consciousness. And his fourth recommendation, resource is our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And I would say that Pim Van Lommel's book, Consciousness Beyond Life, is one of the best books I've read on the modern science of consciousness and the contribution of NDEs. I highly recommend his work, too, in supporting this notion of idealism of the one mind with the brain serving as a filter that allows that one mind to express itself. It appears individual to us, but in essence, we're really sharing the dreams of the one mind. And that is the realization that is coming to humanity even now. 100%, Evan. And it's also something you mentioned in your book, Proof of Heaven, that the root of every form of anxiety in the universe is this idea that we're the feeling that we're separated from God. And you find that throughout many wise people's teachings and also holy scriptures that nothing can ever separate us from God, but we are in a state of separation. And as you rightfully said, this is the cause of so many things, our separation from nature, why we're addicted to fossil fuels, our separation from each other, why we are talking and thinking in a us versus them way, why some people have so much and uh, so many have so little. It all stems from this idea that we're this separate ego and this meat right. sack and in a hostile universe. Now, the, the key to overcoming this is, of course, realizing that we are of that one mind, but it's one thing to realize it in our brains. And as you already also said, our brains are actually filtering out most of the reality. We're actually only taking in very little of what this universe around us is. And in your latest book, you actually also talk about ways of reconnecting to that. Can right. you dive a little bit deeper into that for us, please? Yeah, that is a beautiful question because that's really where the action is for all of us. And what Karen and I, my partner, Karen Newell, who's the co-author of that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, what we often teach in our meditation workshops is just by being a conscious, sentient being, you have all the ingredients you need to dive deeply into this sense of connection with the oneness of the primordial mind and our sense of higher soul and connectedness to our fellow loved ones. Through meditation, through centering prayer, various modes of going within, we discuss in the book, Living in Mind for the Universe, this notion of the supreme illusion. And that's a reminder that as much as our brain and mind are very clever at tricking us into thinking that all that stuff out there is out there and that's what we're experiencing, never forget that what you're truly experiencing in a very simple sense is a mental model. It's constructed within mind. It represents a lot of this. But one of the deepest and most profound lessons of quantum physics is there is no objective, independent, physical universe 
independent of the observing mind. It does not exist. It's nonsensical. And uh, this is where we start to realize that our power of will can have tremendous influence. We normally think that our will is just limited to our body and moving our body and kind of affecting its interactions with the universe. But there are scientific studies of things like psychokinesis that, that greatly put into question that notion of the limits of free will. And I would say, from my point of view as a healer, some of the very best evidence we have for kind of the free will of the higher soul comes in the form of healing. You start with placebo effect. Placebo effect is an admission by medical science that beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes can play a pivotal role in our emerging physical, mental, or emotional health. That is a crucial admission. And in fact, the more you study about placebo effect, the more you start to wonder if there is any residual activity of the substance itself, as opposed to just our mind over matter and our free will in determining these things. And that discussion becomes a lot more lively when you move beyond just simple placebo effect and its utility in assessing new treatment modalities and move into, for example, the field of spontaneous remission. If you go to noetic.org, the Institute of Noetic Sciences website, yes, put in spontaneous remission as a search term, you will find a book that they published in the early 1990s. Reagan, and I'm sorry, I'm blocking on the other author, but it's all right there on the Noetics website. You can download the whole book legally for free because it's their book. It's out of print now. But Helen Wabe is actually renewing that data set. That's 3,500 cases of people who were able to heal cancers, infections, congenital anomalies that they were born with, and other things like that. Of beyond any kind of medical intervention. That's where it gets very exciting. Mm, and in yes. fact, there's a book by Kelly Turner called Radical Remission, where she takes a thousand of those cases from that database that were cancer and talks about the nine features she identified that those people used to facilitate their healing. And of those nine features, six were spiritual, things like adopting a more spiritual approach to life, processing negative emotions, enhancing and acculturating positive emotions, finding meaning and purpose in life. They're very deep spiritual features that she admitted were the main modes of people achieving this kind of healing. And from my point of view, that's where some of your best examples of true free will of the higher soul come into play when we see these extraordinary levels of healing. And of course, you move from placebo effect through these spontaneous remission cases to the grand poobah of them all, which are miraculous healing in near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Like in my case, the case report makes it crystal clear that this experience of mine was completely unexpected based on the medical literature. In fact, the peer-reviewing doctors for the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases challenged the three doctors who wrote my case report, said, this is, case is absurd. People like this don't live to fully recover. How do you explain it? And they said, it's because he had a near-death experience. So I think that's an important part of the equation for people to understand, but it just re-emphasizes the importance of healing and of wholeness that we can all come into. The more we know about these kind of stories, we know what's possible. We know what other people have been through and experienced and the kind of successes we see can serve as a template, as a pathway of understanding of the power we have to bring healing into our own lives. And it's very interesting what you just said about the placebo effect that was actually, or still is mainly viewed as a problematic in studies right. instead of incorporating it 
and making use of it. And uh, yes, your reference to the Institute of Noetic Sciences is an excellent one. Dean Radin was actually also a guest here on this podcast and the research that he's done is oh. also absolutely incredible into all of these experiences. The placebo effect, of course, is one thing, but it also in a way weaves into the power of prayer in a sense. And I know this is also something you talk about living in a mindful universe. You have actually experienced this yourself and you have talked to a lot of people who have had really fascinating experiences with that. And you also talk about the true power, our true selves in this book. What would you say for somebody who's a novice to all of this, who still comes from this worldview of consciousness is created by the brain versus seeing the brain actually more like a radio picking up consciousness? How would you suggest for them to get in touch with that place within us? First thing, very important to point out that running stream of thoughts in your head is not you. So many people identify with that running stream of thoughts in their head as if that is who they are. That is who their consciousness is. That is little more than your ego mind, your linguistic brain. It does a lot of things that are not necessarily getting you any closer to any deep truths about your relationship with the universe. So the first thing I learned was putting that little voice, Evan Alexander's little ego mind, into timeout. This has been demonstrated to me very powerfully during my NDE, that amnesia was the fact that I was disconnected from that sense of identity, which was extremely liberating. It gave me a tabula rasa, an empty slate that allowed for a tremendous journey of discovery and understanding. But I think that's the most important thing to start with, is you're not going to use that little voice in your head to think your way to the right answer. Now, of course, for me as a scientist, I realize that voice is also what we use in terms of rational discussion, logical, conceptual flow, things like that. But what I promise you is there are resources within your own awareness of existence that put those to shame when it comes to creative insight and kind of power of discernment of understanding the universe. And so the first thing I do in meditation, I use sacred acoustics just to cut to the chase of sacredacoustics.com is where you can learn more about that form of differential frequency brainwave entrainment, best used with headphones to separate those two channels into the two ears. And that's where you really get the power out of this. But in that meditation, the first thing I do is I let my Evan Alexander ego voice state a request, make an intention, but then it goes into timeout. And I love how Michael Singer calls that voice in our heads, the annoying roommate. I think if you keep that in mind, that uh, that gives you the proper perspective of diving into a deep meditative experience. But what I then do is I just set myself free of space and time. It's very easy to go back to early childhood memories and get, get lost in the away from the now. And then I do a kind of a powers of 10 visualization with everything expanding or shrinking as a power of 10 every few seconds. And before I know it, the here and now are far distant. I'm way back into childhood memories and then other adventures of discovery in the world of consciousness. And you end up discovering tremendous insights. People throughout our history have used techniques to get into this kind of hypnagogic space between waking and dreaming. For example, Albert Einstein used to float around in a sailboat, staring up at the sky, daydreaming for hours on end. And that's where he would come up with his most brilliant insights to help him move to the next level. That's where his creativity came from. Thomas Alva Edison, one of the greatest inventors in American history, invented the light bulb and the phonograph, many other things. But he would get in these inventive sprees lasting 
for days. And when he was really tired, he would sit there with some weights in his hands. When the weights would drop, it'd wake him up. So he'd go through two or three of these micro naps. And that much hypnagogic exposure gave him new ideas. The universe would give him creativity and brand new insights that seemed to come from out of the blue. That's what he used. Robert Louis Stevenson had a similar technique to Edison that gave him ideas for his novels, poetry, music, all of that. Salvador Dali, Beethoven, many artists, scientists, philosophers have used this kind of daydreaming and hypnagogic letting go to allow the universe to grant them with creative insight. And I've used sacred acoustics daily for years now, for more than a decade, to return my NDE, to develop relationships with all the forces and entities that I first encountered in that realm. And in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we go into very practical details about how the individual can use these tools to go deep into meditative experiences and start to come away with these same deep lessons. So in other words, you don't have to have your own NDE uh, Mm -hmm. by exploring consciousness, especially with a dedicated, regular program of meditation, centering prayer, going within. We can all glean the kind of power that this kind of connection with the universe brings to us in the form of wholeness and healing. Something else that really struck a chord with me reading your books is, and this was in Proof of Heaven, you spoke about that during your NDE, you learned that evil is necessary in order to have free will so we can evolve and grow. And you also said that through all the infinite universes, there are scattered small amounts of evil, but that love prevails and is the foundation of everything. Now, looking at our world here, our reality that we're experiencing collectively now on planet Earth and all the division, all these bad news that we're constantly bombarded with, is there more evil in our particular world than in many others? I would say there's more apparent evil. Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that right now, what we're facing is there's a big battle going on in our culture, a cultural war that in many ways has been back and forth for thousands of years. And that's what this whole science of consciousness is really shaking up as it it leads us more towards elimination of the falsehoods of previous assumptions about the nature of reality and more an embracing of kind of truth and a sense of justice and how these things can fit together. But in that process of revolution, a paradigm shift, as Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N, wrote about back in the mid-20th century. It can seem like a lot of polarization and upheaval, and things can seem like a world is coming to an end, but that's because threatened belief systems are recoiling, and the fundamentalists of many different stripes are recoiling because we are on the verge of awakening to a higher level of human understanding that acknowledges this oneness, this sense of connection, and completely debunks the bleak and paltry fiction of materialism that tries to claim that we're all just material beings, we're just chemical reactions, electron fluxes, that consciousness itself is a complete illusion of those reactions, that everything is predetermined, there is no free will. That Those are the cries of this dying uh, form of thought of materialism or physicalism. 
It's going the way of the dodo and incredible recoil of people whose careers, their livelihoods, all their books they've written are, are now nonsense because they don't align with this deeper, profound truth. And they're having an existential crisis over it all. So don't mistake all the kind of polarization and madness and fury and conflict in the world today as showing that we're entering some hopeless abyss. But look at it more as signs of the, the old world knowing this materialism and this false sense of get all the toys you can because we're material beings. We're all separate from each other. It's all competition as in a Darwinian competition. Whereas biologists in the last hundred years have come to realize how faulty that thinking was. That in fact, most success in biological kingdom is about collaboration, cooperation between members of a species and between species. There's a tremendous amount of that going on. And that is the deeper lesson of the day for this notion of the one mind, the scientific evidence showing that we're truly sharing this one mind, that the life review, your life flashing before your eyes, is really an acknowledgement that the boundaries of self are a fiction. And that's what we need to remember. To hurt another is to hurt oneself. That's the deepest lesson from NDEs now being validated completely by scientific investigation around the world. This notion of the life review is very important. And this is really about humanity finally becoming wise. We call ourselves homo sapiens. Guess what? Yeah, there have been a lot of successes of science and technology. I look particularly to medicine, to communication, to transportation, just beautiful advances with science and technology. And yet look at the dark underbelly of that through all this corporate greed, the addiction of fossil fuels. We're threatening more than 30% of the world's species that have carefully evolved over hundreds of millions of years on this planet. And we're threatening them with extinction, getting rid of them through the stupidity of one species addicted to fossil fuels, and we really need to grow up. It is time for homo sapiens to become wise. That's what this awakening is really all about. And each and every one of us can come into much more fuller and realer sense of who we are, where we're going, and how we align with the universe by exploring this incredible thing called consciousness and coming to realize how interconnected we all are and how we share this tremendous meaning and purpose in terms of growth and transformation of all of consciousness and sentience throughout the universe. That's what we're participating in. Yes, and I think something that's really indicative of that is also the attention that is given to mental health, especially in the last few years. People now realize that there's nothing wrong with them, not they are broken, but right. it's a natural reaction. All these issues that we're dealing with emotionally and mentally, it's a natural reaction to having to conform to a dysfunctional model, to a dysfunctional right. world. And uh, part of that is also what you talked about and what science is also now proving that it's not about domination, it's about collaboration. And uh, to find back to what Dr. Ryan Eisler actually calls the partnership models, which have been part of human history instead of these domination models that have, have been imposed on us the last three, four or 5,000 years right. uh, could really help humanity evolve to humanity 2.0 and becoming stewards of this beautiful planet uh, that has been, in a sense, gifted to us instead of its 
conquerors. So you had an incredible experience when with your NDE and this who when you when I read your books, it just filled me with so much hope and joy. And at the same time, of course, the question comes up, okay, so why are we in this reduced state? Why does everything get filtered down? We're here to learn in a sense, to grow. What do you say though to people who feel that this life here is meaningless? I would say that the more Einstein said, I'll have to paraphrase him here, I don't recall exactly, but something to affect uh, the kind of value of a soul today is very much directed, directly related to how much it is distanced itself from the notion of self. So he was pointing out how the ego is very toxic. And this is something we know from alcoholism and addiction work around the world in hundreds of millions of cases, the realization that the ego can be very demanding and it often makes very unreasonable demands. And these can be death provoking that, for example, as of March of 2021, more than 100,000 Americans had died of drug OD. It's an all time record for drug overdose deaths in our country. But it's an indicator of just how sick and warped our modern society is around diseases of the ego. And the thing is that we can rise above all this and come into a tremendous amount of healing by acknowledging that our conscious awareness is much more than just that little ego mind. And Mm. that's where, for example, you brought up earlier psychedelics. And at this point, I'd like to make two points about psychedelics because luckily the scientific research is very revealing. The first point is there are a number of papers beginning with Robin Carhart Harris's paper out of Imperial College in London back in 2012, where they use functional MRI and then later magnetoencephalography to look at the brain and people under the influence of psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And the interesting thing that they found is that the more profound and phenomenal the experience somebody had, the more the brain went dark. So the materialist who would think, oh, my brain must be lighting up with a Christ- like a Christmas tree to experience all this stuff that I'm experiencing on these magic mushrooms. No, your brain is not doing that at all. The brain is just getting out of the way. Now, that paper rang true with me because it was an absolute direct affirmation and reflection of my own situation of having meningoencephalitis, disabling all the lobes of my brain, neocortex everywhere, disabled. And that's what allowed me to have this profound, ultra-real experience. So when I heard this about the psychedelics, it was a perfect alignment with what I had experienced through a far more profound damage to the neocortex than uh, psychedelics would ever do. And that's why I had such such an experience. Mm. Now, it turns out that numerous papers around the world have now confirmed those earlier reports. They've looked at DMT, dimethyltryptamine, active principle in ayahuasca. They've looked at LSD, one of the most powerful serotonin 2A type drugs. And they really find the same thing. The brain is not creating those experiences. The brain is going dark. So materialists run out of uh, explanatory space if they're using fMRI and magnetoencephalography and other techniques of looking at the neural correlates of consciousness because they're not there for those kinds of experiences. So that's one very important point about psychedelics. They're showing us the materialist model of brain creates consciousness is totally false. So throw that away and let's start working on something that's real. Now, the other important thing, and this is a very practical point, about psychedelics is there have been some beautiful papers that have come out in the last few years. Roland Griffiths is one of the the authors, but they've done work with psilocybin 
in addressing some of the very toughest addictions we know of, addiction to nicotine, opiates, addiction to alcohol, very tough drug addictions that have been addressed with one or two doses of psilocybin in a proper therapeutic setting. And similarly, they've used psilocybin against a debilitating fear of death in terminal cancer patients and found remarkable power of one or two doses to alleviate these symptoms for months and years. And the point I'm making there, <coughs> excuse me, is I believe that it's that thinning of the veil that we accomplish in that therapeutic setting that allows you to get out of your ego mind and more in touch with your higher soul that allows you to do that profound amount of healing. That's what we're talking about is healing coming into wholeness. And those particular investigators think that one or two doses of psilocybin is necessary. And I would say, and we're in the process of trying to design these studies to assess this, but binaural beat brainwave entrainment, I think can be a very powerful tool. We know, for example, Dr. Anna Yusim wrote a peer reviewed uh, case report on the use of sacred acoustics tones and alleviating anxiety in a very busy New York psychiatric practice. And what she found is over two weeks of listening to sacred acoustics tones, her patient population had a 26% reduction in their anxiety symptoms. That's versus only a 7% reduction in the group that got standard talk therapy, but without sacred acoustics tones. That was mm -hmm. the control group. And so that's, and in a peer reviewed medical journal that came in, came out in February, 2021 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. And that pilot study just shows a tremendous kind of power for binaural beat brainwave entrainment, especially sacred acoustics to engender states of relaxation and relief of anxiety symptoms. And that's just the beginning compared to where I know a lot of this can go given our workshops and successes we've had of people connecting with souls of departed loved ones, coming into greater creativity in their professional lives, coming into guidance with souls of departed loved ones and other, the power, majesty, and all of that God force of pure love that so many in the ears have experienced can also be experienced through meditation and centering prayer. So these are all modes of really getting into a higher level of healing and understanding of our power to contribute to our own healing and wholeness. Yes, there's many different ways to get to nirvana, so to speak, or to connect with our larger, higher selves, to connect with the divine. And I think we're living in such fascinating times where science and spirituality are intersecting, supporting each other, where more and more people are opening up to this. I would love to hear your thoughts, Evan, on scientific advancements, especially right now, a life extension, living longer is a huge topic. And there's many brilliant brains from Dr. David Sinclair working on how to live longer, live better. I, miss, I myself, I'm a biohacker. I try to optimize my bodily functions, my emotional well-being, how my brain functions, as well as my spirit. Now, there's one thing. The one thing is to make your life better and enjoy it even longer. The other thing is endeavors such as Ray Kurzweil, who is intending to extend a life, what he defines as life, indefinitely by uploading what he says is our consciousness into avatars. Now, of course, he has a very specific materialistic idea about what consciousness is, just based on our memories and electric impulses and things like that. What do you think about these endeavors that are trying to extend 
quote, consciousness forever by using avatars? I think one would, I would just advise great caution into thinking that all we have to do is download our kind of mental experience and memories to some form of information processing system. And that will then result in a continuity of our conscious awareness. The fact of the matter is conscious awareness beyond permanent bodily death is already scientifically demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt. Go to BigelowInstitute.org, check out the 29 winning essays, and you'll realize that all this talk of afterlife and of reincarnation memories in children is because our souls do not die, that in fact, our physical bodies die, but that our conscious awareness continues, our relationships with the loved ones continues. We reshuffle it and come back in new incarnations. And that is a feature of our current reality that is scientifically demonstrable. For those who want to go way beyond the Bigelow papers, for example, I would say you can go to the writings of Ed Kelly. From my point of view, Living the Mindful Universe has been endorsed. That's our book. That was endorsed by Ed Kelly, by Bruce Grayson, by Jim Tucker, all at DOPS. It's been endorsed by Bernardo Castrup and many others. But for people who really want to dive the deep scientific dive, I would recommend Ed Kelly's three books, beginning with Irreducible Mind in 2007, then Beyond Physicalism in 2015. And finally, his third book in the trilogy so far, I hope he's writing more books because, uh, man, he's on target. But his third one is called Consciousness Unbound. These are all edited by Ed Kelly. But he has world experts in consciousness study, physicists, neuroscientists, psychologists, et cetera, across the board discussing how all this can work. And they're making great progress. And I contribute to this work through my efforts with the Galileo Commission. People can learn more about that, GalileoCommission.org, and also Scientific and Medical Network based in England. I do a lot of work with them too. And both these are scientific groups that are far along the pathway of proving the primacy of consciousness in the universe, that it's not derivative from brain. And these are absolutely revolutionary insights that this scientific study, the brain-mind connection and the fundamental nature of consciousness is bringing to this world at large. Yes, I've also always felt a little bit easy with the all these projects that are trying to extend human life indefinitely, but without really having a grasp of what consciousness is or reducing it to right. some completely material. Something else that you uh, go dive deep into uh, your book that you uh, that with your co-author Karen is and actually a chapter is titled that as well as love, be the love that you are. You had a profound experience, a feeling of being loved as you are during your NDE. You share a lot of your personal life of being adopted and that you dealt with feelings of abandonment, not being lovable for a long time. So the one thing is to realize in your brain that yes, I'm worthy. I'm I love myself. The other is to truly em em embody it, to truly be that. How can most of us have some kind of an issue or another to, with true self-love, which is the basis to also being able to extend love to others? Right. How can mm -hmm. we take the first steps to reconnect to what is actually our birth to be? I think ultimately it's all about being authentic, living through the heart feeling the emotional connection. So in other words, when I connect with a loved one who's left the physical plane, 
What I do is I remember the feeling of what it was like to be with them through some of the greatest moments of bonding that we had in our lifetime. And I dwell on that feeling. My partner, Karen Newell, has taught me many a time about heart consciousness and this kind of resonance and overlap and that sense of connection that is purely emotional. So if we try and do it cognitively, intellectually, it's a bleak and weak affair. But when we can do it with the emotional engagement and really live through that currency and bring that love and start bringing those feelings into how we see our relationship with the universe to ourselves, and then also how to, of course, share it, as you said, How do we bring this love to ourselves most effectively? It's by serving as a conduit. So it flows through us to the world. Uh, As so many have noticed, as Einstein said, that liberation from the notion of self is so critical. And in our egocentric society, there's a lot of narcissism. It just all this me-centered stuff is toxic as hell. It's very dangerous and it leads to just a miserable life. Be of service to others. Be there for the higher mind, the greater good. This is where we can start to find tremendous value in our lives. Take care of the least, the last, the lost. Be there for the refugees. Be there for those who are in need of help. And the more we can be of service to others and bring love into this world, show kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, when necessary, forgiveness, the more we can truly start growing into wisdom of homo sapiens. That wisdom is absolutely dependent on love. The Beatles said it, Dion Warwick said it, all we need is love. What the world needs now is love. And they were absolutely right. And that is the fundamental lesson that comes from near-death experiences and has for thousands of years, that it's truly all about love and compassion and kindness and taking care of each other and get rid of this toxic, egocentric, my way or the highway, I want to get all the toys before I die. That kind of madness of materialistic nonsense thinking is very toxic and destructive on the individual level and on a global level. So it's time for all of us to participate in changing that narrative, coming to realize the power that being of service to others, helping others, and manifesting this love for our fellow beings is the most important way that we can bring love into our own lives. Yes, 100%, Evan, and the most beautiful and most important practice of all, to love, to embody love and be of service. And that's usually, you have shared this in such a beautiful way. It's usually a question I ask my guests towards the end of the conversations, what the practice is that has most influenced their lives. And I'm this is at the core of your mission ever since you've experienced your NDE. Thank you so much for sharing of your experience and your wisdom with us, Evan, for people who'd love to learn more about you. Of course, they. I highly recommend they read all of your wonderful books. How else can they reach you and learn more about you? Well, the best way is go to Eben Alexander. That's E-B is in Baker, E-N Alexander.com. And you can learn a lot more about me. There's a recommended reading list there with more than a hundred links to books, to chapters, some to hot links to papers, active academic papers, et cetera. It's all categorized. That reading list is a treasure trove for anyone who wants to get deeply into this. I would also recommend for those who want to follow a lot of the work that Karen and I do, go to unitedinhopeandhealing.com. There are several different avenues there, including 
a set of biweekly webinars we did interviewing some of the luminaries around the world in consciousness studies. And all that's available for free at unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Excuse me. Also go to sacredacoustics.com to learn a lot more about meditation. The books are clearly important. Proof of Heaven, Map of Heaven, and Living in a Mindful Universe, especially that third book. That is the one that's the true proof of heaven and goes a long way towards showing how science and spirituality are coming together in the modern era. Wonderful. I'll make sure to mention all of these resources in the show notes, as well as all of the amazing recommendations you have given to us during the conversation. Evan, it's been a profound pleasure to connect with you and to listen with you. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Ariane, thank you so much for having me on and thank you for what you do. Taking this kind of message out to the world in big channels is very important for helping bring this world up to speed. So thanks to you for all of your efforts. Thank you, Evan. You're most kind. Have a beautiful rest of your day. All right. You too. Thanks a lot. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 